Just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Grammar Girl here. Today, we're going to tackle an interesting question. When we talk about proper English, what exactly do we mean? It's actually a complicated question, so I've brought in guest writer Elizabeth Little to walk you through it. She's the author of a new book called Trip of the Tongue, which describes her travels across America meeting people who speak different dialects. So when we talk about proper English, what do we mean? Do we mean the English that you can take home to your grandmother? Do we mean the English that will impress your boss? Or do we mean the English that everyone will understand? Well, most of the time we mean all these things. When we go looking for grammar guidance, we're hoping to refine our tone, our sophistication, and our clarity. We want, at the end of the day, to be better writers. But if we mean all those things, then what we should really say is standard English. Although it would probably be even more accurate to say the English that a very few people agreed upon about 600 years ago and that we're now mostly stuck with. Because when we use the phrase proper English, we're playing into a whole mess of stereotypes and misconceptions about language. And all it takes is a quick look at the history of standard English to see why this might be true. I like to think of a standard variety of language as the lingua franca for speakers of a single language. A speaker from West Texas, for instance, might have trouble understanding a speaker from South Boston. But neither one of them has any trouble watching the national news, which is conducted in standard English, the type of English that just about everyone will understand wherever it's spoken. English first flirted with written standardization back in the ninth century, when Alfred the Great noticed that everyone's Latin wasn't what it used to be, is it ever, and requested Anglo-Saxon translations of, quote, those books that are most necessary for all men to know, unquote. When William the Conqueror showed up in 1066, however, he brought with him a slew of scribes and courtiers whose languages of choice were Latin and Norman French, and English was more or less exiled to the monasteries for a few centuries. Still, English never ceased to be a widely spoken language. So when England ultimately distanced itself from France, English was right there waiting, ready to reassert itself into official business and the written record. It happened slowly at first, but by the time of Henry V, English had displaced French as the language of government almost entirely. Soon, the use of written English was spreading rapidly, from guildmasters to merchants to churchmen, many of whom must have been wildly relieved to be able to conduct business in a version of their native language. As English began to be used for increasingly important purposes, it became increasingly important to use a form of English that everyone could understand and that everyone would respect. At first, standards were largely, though not exclusively, determined by the language of the royal clerks. The rise of the printing press also played a key role in standardizing language, particularly with regard to spelling. 
For instance, we have foreign compositors and typefaces to thank for the use of GH instead of G in certain words, such as ghost. Soon enough, though, the subject of language standardization was taken up by dictionary writers, grammarians, and even general linguistic busybodies. Many of the early English dictionaries and grammars ostensibly sought to describe prevailing usage. They weren't meant to be prescriptive. But of course, the selection of any one variety as a representative form is, in and of itself, a kind of prescription. These early and influential dictionaries and grammars relied on a variety of criteria to determine their recommended words and rules. In his landmark Dictionary of the English Language, Samuel Johnson leaned heavily on citations from widely respected authors, a trend that continues to this day. Grammarians had their own guiding principles, often calling on logic, for example, decrying double negatives and superlatives, or etymology, for example, railing against the substitution of nauseous for nauseated. Other rationales were more subjective. Some writers, for instance, believed that it was better to use one-syllable words whenever possible because they were closer to the language of Adam and Eve. And then there were those who felt so strongly about the linguistic virtues of Latin and Greek that they could come to believe, as John Dryden famously did, that a preposition at the end of a sentence is something to be strenuously avoided. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear debris with the 40-volt jet fan leaf blower. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at your cordless power source, The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart, every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi. Hey, it's Mignon. Do you need a new literary show to add to your podcast queue? Well, then you definitely want to check out Missing Pages, the chart-topping and Signal Award-winning podcast produced by the Podglomerate. Back for a brand new season, Missing Pages investigates the most pressing topics in the book world today, from the rise of Colleen Hoover and book bans across America to the world of ghostwriting. 
Not to mention, host and acclaimed literary critic Beth Ann Patrick interviews some of the biggest names in the industry, like New York Times bestselling author Jody Pico and Publishers Weekly co-editorial director Jim Milliot. And as the Washington Post and The Guardian said, missing pages is a, quote, must listen. And I agree. So don't miss out. Follow Missing Pages today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. No matter how persuasive the scholarship, the facts remain the same. The variety that would become standard English was based on the varieties of the political, economic, and intellectual elite— not because they were necessarily better, but because they were the ones who got to decide. And this is when things start to get a bit tricky. The literary market in the 17th and 18th centuries wasn't so different from our own. There wasn't much demand for linguistic observation. What readers wanted was linguistic guidance. And again and again, scholars and linguists from Johnson to Webster to Henry Higgins did their best to fill this need. Even Robert Caudry's 1604 Table Alphabetical, the earliest English dictionary, makes explicit on its title page that it has been, quote, gathered for the benefit and help of ladies, gentlewomen, or any other unskillful persons, whereby they may more easily and better understand many hard English words, unquote. But as social mobility increased, the standards of the written language exerted more and more influence on the spoken language which was looked to as a measure of refinement or politeness. Soon the demand for linguistic instruction outstripped the scholarly supply, and readers began to snap up handbooks and how-tos whose advice was justified not by years of study, or any study at all for that matter, but rather by the ruthlessly efficient principle of you should, or more accurately, you shouldn't. So it was that non-standard language became a nuisance to be dealt with or a bad habit to be frowned upon. And when you teach that there's only one way to be right, it's only natural to conclude that every other way is wrong. As long as we've had language varieties, we've also had stereotypes about the people who speak those varieties. But the implementation of the standard form of a language, couched as it is so often in terms of elegance, propriety, and correctness, can make an otherwise unassuming us-them split and institutionally marry it to a set of pernicious value judgments, what is right, what is educated, what is civilized, and what is good. Linguists and philosophers, and just about anyone who's ever stopped to think about it, have been doing battle with perceptions like these for centuries, just as they've been doing battle with similarly ingrained stereotypes relating to race, ethnicity, class, and gender— and they're having about as much luck with the former as they are with the latter. Today, conspicuously non-standard varieties of English, particularly those spoken in the South and by African Americans, are still routinely characterized as defective, lazy, and flat-out wrong. But the truth is this. Every variety of English is equally regularized and expressive, just as every language is equally expressive. That means they all have their own internal rules and grammar that people follow. Despite what the usage mavens of yesteryear might have us believe, proficiency with standard English has nothing to do with innate linguistic superiority or cognitive or moral superiority. Though the language we use in any given situation is surely a product of external circumstances, it is in no way a function of internal worth. That doesn't mean we shouldn't learn standard English, quite the contrary given the importance placed on its usage, 
It would be irresponsible to suggest otherwise. But surely there's room for one more standardization, that we all agree to do away with the idea that there's a single, objectively superior form we call proper English. It's much more accurate to refer to what many think of as proper English with the term language scholars use, standard English. This podcast was written by Elizabeth Little, who traveled America, meeting people who speak America's many languages and dialects, including Navajo, Basque, and Gullah. Her book is Trip of the Tongue, and you can find her at elizabeth-little.com. That's elizabeth-little.com. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find a complete transcript of this podcast at quickanddirtytips.com. That's all. Thanks for listening.